Thank you for watching NTD Business coming up tonight. To hike or not to hike? That's the question facing the Federal Reserve. The Fed has to weigh the banking sector on one hand and the economy on the other. An investment firm tells us it's not a good time right now to be looking at upside opportunities in your investments. Home prices dropping for the first time in over a decade, ending a record-breaking streak of increases. Senator Josh Hawley introduces a bill to end normal trade relations with China. He believes this will help the American working class. But will it actually? We try to find out. Day two of Chinese leader Xi Jinping's visit to Russia. We speak to Tiffany Meyer, host of the China in Focus show. She questions whether we're seeing a shift in the world balance. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Good to have you with us, Don Ma here. It's getting slightly more affordable to buy a home. The median home price dropped in February, according to a report from the National Association of Realtors out today. The 0.2% year-over-year decline might not sound like much, but it's the first dip in more than a decade. In fact, it ends a streak of increases that was the longest on record. The report also shows home sales surged in February, ending the longest streak of month-to-month declines ever. The association says the increase is the largest since July 2020, before high prices and interest rates started causing buyers to think twice. On Wall Street, major indexes closed higher today. The Dow added 316 points, or 1 percent. S&P rose 51 points, or 1.3 percent. And the Nasdaq added 185 points, 1.6 percent. In banking news, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. banking system is stabilizing after strong actions from regulators. She told bankers today that the government will intervene again if needed to help smaller banks. The steps we took were not focused on aiding specific banks or classes of banks. Our intervention was necessary to protect the broader U.S. banking system. And similar actions could be warranted if smaller institutions suffered deposit runs that posed the risk of contagion. Over a week ago, the FDIC closed two failing banks. In those cases, it was allowed to guarantee uninsured deposits over the $250,000 limit. Now, some banking groups want the government to temporarily expand the FDIC's coverage to all bank deposits. U.S. officials are reportedly studying ways to cover all deposits if the situation gets worse. That's according to Bloomberg, citing unnamed sources. They reportedly said authorities don't think the move is actually necessary. Meanwhile, Yellen says the recent banking crisis is very different from 2008. Our banking system is sound, even as it's come under some pressure. As I indicated, this is different than 2008. 2008 was a solvency crisis. Rather, what we're seeing are contagious bank runs. Yellen said our financial system is stronger than it was 15 years ago. She also said she's in close contact with bankers, regulators, and participants about the banking situation. And to hike or not to hike? That's the question the Federal Reserve will ponder as it makes its next decision. Annual inflation was down to 6% in February and the labor market remained strong. These economic indicators would typically point to another rate increase Wednesday.
taken in isolation. I mean, the economy looks very, very good right now. And yes, you know, the Fed would probably be raising rates by 25 basis points without what's going on right now. That said, you know, what's going on right now is very unsettling. I think what matters is can they stabilize the banking system so they can free up uh, their, their, their ability to tackle inflation? But the Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapses raised questions about how much banks can handle. Meanwhile, the recent rate hikes put pressure on consumers from both sides. They're still facing high inflation while paying more in credit card interest on mortgages and auto loans. Joining me is Chance Vanukin, Chief Investment Officer at Oxbow Advisors. Now, we have the Fed meeting tomorrow, Chance. Let's just for a moment put aside what the Fed will actually do. I just want your thoughts on how you feel about all this. What do you think is the right move for the Fed? Uh, pause or continue to hike? It's a tough call. I think given that inflation is still at 6% and probably is only going to come down to about 4% before it stalls out at around 4 for a while, uh, they probably still have to hike a little bit more. But you're seeing things break now in the financial markets. And what's interesting to us is the thing that caused the issues with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, those were treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. We didn't even get into the commercial real estate loans that have been given out by small and mid-sized banks. And we think that could be an area that you see weakness in the months or, or quarters to come. But what we pay attention to is a lot of the lending growth uh, in the U.S. economy comes from small and mid-sized banks. The majority of commercial and industrial loans, commercial real estate loans, consumer lending, and residential real estate those loans are coming from these sorts of banks that are having trouble keeping their deposits. It's not the mega banks like JP Morgan's and Wells Fargo's of the world. So if this is the situation we're in, you're going to see a slowdown in lending, which is going to further slow economic growth, which is going to make it a difficult environment for companies to generate uh, any profit growth and keep up their margin. So I think right now it's just a very difficult time for the Fed. With inflation being higher than they want, they can't start to ease or try to assist the situation like they would have in the past 10 years. And if we do get a 25 basis point hike tomorrow, um, does it change your investment strategy or has your invest investment strategy changed over these past few weeks? Our strategy really has not changed. Uh, what we've done in recent weeks as the volatility has spiked here is really paying close attention to everything we own in our clients' portfolios. And if we see anything that we think has an outsized risk and not a whole lot of reward left to it, we're getting out of those positions on days that those uh, securities trade higher so that we're really making sure we're, we're mitigating the risk in the portfolio. But this is the sort of outcome we've been anticipating for quarters. Uh, through pretty much all of 2022. And we would expect that sort of high-risk scenario to continue in the months ahead. Right, and you make a good point. I mean, is that the name of the game right now, to eliminate risk, uh, in your opinion? Yeah, we believe it is. So you haven't seen asset prices get down to levels where it's in your best interest to start really getting a bit more aggressive and thinking more about the upside rather than the downside. You've seen some real big problems in a few isolated areas of the market right now. But if you look across all the different sectors, things are still pretty fairly valued, if not a bit overvalued. So with the decelerating economy and some more issues happening in the financials part of the market, it's really not best place to be thinking about upside or opportunities. You'd much rather be focusing on staying defensive and waiting for a, a better uh, opportunity down the road.
where do you see safe spots in, in the market? So what we've noticed, we, we put some allocation into uh, gold royalty businesses or gold miners. Uh, that's been an area that offers some diversification. And on certain days when everything else in the market is going down, they can trade higher because it's a relative safe space to be. We also think there's still some opportunities in the healthcare sector. Uh, so we own a few healthcare insurers that are trading at reasonable multiples. And then if you're looking for yield, there are still some areas uh, that don't necessarily offer a lot of growth, but have consistent cash flow and pay a high dividend. So for our high income strategy, we recently purchased positions in names like Verizon and Kinder Morgan uh, that pay a 7% dividend yield. And we think that dividend is sustainable and you're buying an evaluation that's below its historic average. So we think that's a, a relative safe space to be as the rest of the market is going through a choppier environment. All right, thank you very much, Chance. A pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks, Don. No indictment today in the probe of former President Trump. The indictment, if it happens, is delayed until possibly next week. Fox News reports that the grand jury is expected to hear additional witness testimony on Wednesday. Meanwhile, law enforcement is preparing for possible protests as the former president on Saturday called on supporters to protest and, quote, take our nation back. Officials put up barricades in front of the Manhattan Criminal Court on Monday. Fences have also been put up around the Capitol and the Supreme Court in Washington in anticipation of possible protests. All this is about Trump's alleged involvement in a $130,000 hush money payment made in 2016 to adult film star Stormy Daniels. Daniels says she had an affair with Trump in 2006, which Trump denies. Meanwhile, a Trump ally yesterday called the key witness in the case a liar. The key witness being Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen. In 2018, Cohen was sentenced to three years in prison after pleading guilty to lying to Congress. It was also disbarred. On Monday, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan sent a letter to the District Attorney of Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, demanding answers for legal basis to bring charges against Trump. Bragg's office responded saying, quote, we will not be intimidated by attempts to undermine the justice process. It's unclear who will be testifying on Wednesday and what additional information might be offered. Chinese leader Xi Jinping and Russian President Vladimir Putin finished a day of talks today, signing agreements to deepen their ties. The two leaders discussed plans to ramp up Russian energy exports to China, hoping that Chinese firms would replace Western businesses in Russia and the Chinese leader's proposed peace plan for the war in Ukraine. Russian media reported the two men spoke for more than four hours on Monday and enjoyed a state dinner at the Kremlin, praising each other as a dear friend. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken criticized the visit. That President Xi is traveling to Russia days after the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for President Putin suggests that China feels no responsibility to hold the Kremlin accountable for the atrocities committed in Ukraine and instead of even condemning them, uh, it would rather provide diplomatic cover for Russia to continue to commit those very crimes. While China has sought to cast itself as a potential peacemaker in the conflict, Beijing's proposed ceasefire has so far been largely dismissed in the West as a ploy to buy Putin time. And joining me as a very special guest today, we have the host of China in Focus, Tiffany Meyer. She gets a ton of views on her channel. Be, be sure to check it out when you have time. Now, the reason I asked you here today, Tiv, is maybe you could shed some light on this Putin-Xi visit. You know, 
China coined the trip as a peace mission. I wonder, is that all it is? Um, if, if not, what's the deeper message here, or maybe a bit of both? Well, I think Xi Jinping definitely needs like a cover for this trip because there is a lot riding on it. There's a lot of eyes on it. The U.S. is watching very closely. And so under this guise of diplomacy or peace talks, it's a way to get into the country and not raise so many eyebrows. At that same time, though, there is a lot of concern because China is basically Russia's only lifeline. They're the ones who've been providing a lot of economic help to Russia, especially with all of the Western sanctions. So that's a huge focus. On the talk of peace talks, you know, the U.S. is very concerned because is this meeting going to end up with China sending weapons or selling weapons to Russia? There's already been some reports about that with Russia using Chinese ammunition in the Ukraine war. Or if Beijing, if Xi Jinping actually secures a peace talk or a ceasefire, would it just be where Russian troops remain in the parts of Ukraine that they've already occupied? In which case, you know, Zelensky, Ukraine's president, would probably not be happy about that. And the U.S. is really not about that because that would also signal to the world that China is a peacemaker, right? This, this trip does come on the heels of China brokering this peace deal between the Middle Eastern countries. Saudi Arabia and Iran, who were big enemies, basically. And so with that, Xi Jinping is trying to get this kind of world prestige being seen as that. And ultimately, it's not about peace, though. It's about power, because if he does get that, it boosts him on the world stage and pushes the U.S. down. And you touched on this point a little bit earlier. We know that Moscow has become uh, increasingly dependent on Beijing for its economy. And when it comes to ending the war in Ukraine, do you feel that it's also in China's interest for this war to end? Because as well, we've heard reports that China could be supporting this war uh, in some way or another, and it could be putting a strain, if you will, on China's economy. Well, in terms of ending the war, that would help Beijing if they they are the ones who call for the peace talks or the ceasefire, because that would boost their presence on the world stage. But it would be, you know, not good in terms of NATO then having enough power to reassemble themselves and work on the next big threat, which would be communist China. So what a lot of experts have been telling us, especially recently, is that China would actually want this war to continue, especially if Xi Jinping wanted to go after Taiwan, because in that case, the U.S. would be faced with the prospect of fighting two wars on two fronts, right? In that aspect, a lot of people are thinking Xi Jinping would want this war to continue so that he can focus on taking over Taiwan. And let me just get your thoughts on one more thing. You know, there's been a lot of media coverage uh, on this visit. Uh, I think it was no accident. So what should the West take away from this? How, how should the West be reacting? Well, I think right now there's um, a lot on the line, right? The West should be using a lot of caution going forward because there could be a shift in world balances. Most countries have turned to the U.S. in terms of, you know, settling disputes and things, but we are seeing Beijing really kind of garnering that spot on the world stage, especially after the Saudi-Iran deal. The focus on what happened in Afghanistan has made a lot of U.S. allies concerned recently. And so with the U.S., you're seeing, is the U.S. still really the most powerful, right? Is the U.S. still able to convince other countries that it is still the most powerful country on the world? 
Or are some of the closer countries in Asia, especially Asian countries to China, starting to think maybe China could be that one? A lot of it is riding on the U.S. leadership and what that leadership is doing and the message that's being sent out. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. But thank you very much today for coming on the show. It was a pleasure speaking to you, Tiffany. It's an honor to be here. Russia has banned the use of the Apple iPhone on government devices. Some are seeing similarities to the U.S. government banning TikTok on workers' devices. NTD's Shar Marshall has more. The Kremlin has told officials involved in preparations for Russia's 2024 presidential election to stop using iPhones. The Kommersant newspaper reports that the presidential administration told the officials to change their phones by April 1st. The Russian government reportedly has concerns that the devices are vulnerable to Western intelligence agencies. Apple probably doesn't mind much since they stopped iPhone sales to Russia in March 2022 because of the invasion of Ukraine. But Russians can still buy the iPhone 14 via a parallel import scheme. This allows retailers to import products from overseas without needing permission from the trademark owner. Russian President Vladimir Putin has always said he has no smartphone, although a Kremlin spokesman says Putin does use the internet from time to time. Apple did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Sean Marshall, NTD News. Google has suspended the Chinese shopping app Pinduoduo from its app store. Google said in a statement that this was out of security concerns and it's investigating the matter. Pinduoduo is a popular e-commerce app in China. Google warned users today to uninstall any Pinduoduo app not downloaded from Google Play Store. Malware was reportedly discovered in versions of the app downloaded from other sources. In fact, many Chinese online shopping platforms offer downloads of the app. Though it's unclear if Apple shares the same security concerns about this app, Pinduoduo was still available to download from Apple's iOS store today. The suspension of the Pinduoduo app comes amid heightened U.S.-China tensions over Chinese-owned apps like TikTok. For more details, stick around for China in Focus coming up at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. It's going to have a story about Chinese company Pinduoduo's subsidiary in the U.S. It's the online shopping app called Timu. Senator Josh Hawley has announced the Ending Normal Trade Relations with China Act. He says these relations have caused Americans to lose their jobs and that revoking them will protect America's working class. But will it really? Today, we look at both sides of the argument. On Twitter, Senator Hawley wrote, since Congress stupidly gave China favored trade status, we have lost millions of good-paying blue-collar jobs. He wrote that it's time to rebuild the American working class. Holly says China is America's greatest adversary, and he says in order to beat China, America needs strong, independent workers. So what exactly does it mean to end normal trade relations? Holly is referring to ending China's most favored nation trade status with the U.S. This status gives China special trading benefits. Mainly, it doesn't have to pay standard duties for importing its products. If Holly successfully gets rid of China's special trade status, everything they send us will become more expensive. The U.S. gave China most favored nation status back in 1980 under President Jimmy Carter. At that time, the American government wanted to normalize the two countries' relations. Then in the year 2000, President Bill Clinton worked to make this status permanent. We talked to an economist who doesn't really like the idea of ending normal trade relations, Riley Walters from the Hudson Institute. Walters says this would significantly hurt U.S.-China trade. 
China and the United States, they're, we're each other's one of our largest trading partners. So it would have a meaningful effect, especially in the short term. But I don't think it would have the intended effect that a lot of people hope it would, which is to bring manufacturing home. I think one of the things that we've seen over the last few years in the U.S.-China trade war has been not a lot of that manufacturing, which you know, uh, people have been targeting, has not been coming back to the United States. It's been either going to uh, Mexico or Southeast Asia, you know, ASEAN nations like Vietnam or Malaysia. On top of that, Walters doesn't think China's trade status has even cost the U.S. that many jobs. He's looked at many studies, and they give different estimates of how many jobs America has lost, as well as how many jobs America has gained as a result of trade. Walters believes the United States as a whole has benefited from trading with China, of course, without some costs, the costs being American manufacturing. The quick, short span in which job loss occurred um, really caught people's eyes. But, you know, I think the job loss that came from trade with China is negligible. And it's also, um, it's also debatable because a lot of that actually happened with, alongside automation as well. And so a lot of U.S. Uh, manufacturers themselves, they moved to other countries or they automated. We also spoke to someone who supports the general theme of Senator Hawley's bill, global logistics expert Ross Kennedy. He spent many years managing logistics and supply chains for firms exporting and importing from China. He says trade with China is a complicated issue, but it's definitely a main reason for the fall of American manufacturing. The extent to which it's a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad thing is is probably the part that's up for debate. But at the end of the day, really, when you talk about 2001 for the next 10 to 15 years, China was such a low cost producer, not only on the labor side, but also on the environmental side, uh, as China grew and attracted more uh, first order, you know, primary and uh, raw material, you know, and that intermediate material manufacturing, it simply became cheaper for companies to outsource manufacturing there. Kennedy says China has not been playing by the rules, which is unfair to the U.S. China bans American products, provides hidden subsidies to its own companies, and steals American technology. Kennedy says we should make the situation more fair. But one bill is not going to get it done, just like the Section 301 tariffs from Trump didn't get it done. It's going to take a really concerted whole-of-government effort to get there. But this is one important step in, in beginning to say, how can we begin to, right now, address some of the disparities that China utilizes and weaponizes against the U.S. Senator Josh Hawley is expected to formally introduce his bill later this week. We reached out to the senator, but he didn't respond before airtime. I'll keep you updated. We're taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please email us at business at ntd.com. Still to come, Google rolling out its new AI chatbot tool, a rival to ChatGPT. What can you do with it? Last non-electric Dodge Challenger going out with a bang. It's so fast you might even need a parachute to stop. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. It's time to meet BARD, Google's new AI chatbot tool. Now, similar to ChatGPT, BARD is trained on vast troves of online data to generate compelling responses to user prompts. 
Google says it can help you outline and write essay drafts, plan a friend's baby shower, or maybe make a lunch based on what's in your fridge. Right now, BARD is a separate but complementary experience to Google Search, though that might change in the future. Google has also put guardrails in place to keep interactions helpful and on topic. Users in the U.S. and U.K. can join the waitlist to access BARD. Dodge will halt production of its legendary V8-powered muscle car, the Challenger, at the end of this year. And Dodge engineers want the last Challenger made to go out with a literal bang. Dodge says under ideal circumstances, the Demon 170 will be able to go from 0 to 60 in just under two seconds. Drivers have the option of adding a parachute mounting system to make coming to a stop easier. But they would have to sign a notarized disclaimer for it, saying they understand the car isn't intended for everyday use. The chief executive of Stellantis' Dodge brand says at full throttle, the car could completely drain its tank of racing fuel in under six minutes. Now, the price tag is $96,000, and that doesn't include an almost $8,000 gas guzzler tax. Dodge is already working on a new fully electric muscle car, which is expected to be available in 2024. And that's all today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter if you're there. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at NTD.com. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.